I invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Let's read God's good word together. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever known someone that just by being present changes the environment? Whenever they walk into the room, you can feel it. You know, something is different. Rowan Williams tells a story about this. He was visiting a monastery in Egypt, and they would tell stories of, about this, this monk, this monk named Father Philemon. And uh, that's not a real common name in Oklahoma, but apparently in Egyptian monasteries it is. But they would tell stories about him, and they had just these amazing stories. They, they told this story that, that once he was able to stop a train simply by praying. He said a prayer and, and a train stopped. And uh, Rowan Williams thought this was really interesting. The question that he had was not like, did anyone verify that? Did, can anyone attest to a train that all of a sudden stopped? Or can we go back and can we look at uh, railroad records to make sure? Like, this train should have been late if it was stopped, right? So can we get verification? The, the question that he asked was, what must it have been like to be around this person if you heard that story and then you believed it? What would it be like to have the kind of relationship with someone that if you heard that they prayed and a train stopped, that you would believe it? Those are the kind of stories that we're hearing from the Gospel of Mark. They're telling us about someone whose effect on people was so powerful that as they shared those stories with one, people, with one group of people, and then those people shared it, the effect was so powerful that these amazing things that we read about in the Scriptures, these amazing things that Jesus did, people said, yes, that is amazing. Because that is what the power was of encountering Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're in, in week four of the Gospel of Mark, a beginner's guide to following Jesus. And we're going through the Gospel of Mark and asking, what does it tell us about what it means to follow him? And so in week one, we talked about just kind of the basics. Mark is the shortest gospel and probably the earliest written sometime around 70 AD following the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In, in the year 70, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which was just a historic and catastrophic event. And uh, based on that, we think probably that was when, um, around the time Mark was writing, probably just after that. And the way that Mark's gospel begins, he says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's sharing good news. This is a proclamation of good news, a, a gospel, um, a, a message of good news. And he tells us the beginning, but the end, the goal, is the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where nothing is missing or broken, and where God rules. So that's what everything is building toward, the establishment of that kingdom. And what we're invited to is to live in that kingdom even now, even today, even in the midst of, of the middle between the beginning and end where we find suffering. That was true in Jesus' day. Certainly he encountered it personally and he saw it around him. But that's true for us as well. We continue to experience suffering. We don't have to look hard to see all the different ways that people are struggling and suffering in our community and around the world. And that's where Jesus meets us. 
That's where he meets us and invites us to follow him. And so that's where, that was week one. And week two, what we saw is that the first rule that Jesus gives us is to travel with a buddy. Don't do ministry alone. Don't go out in service alone. We need one another. And, uh, and we get into trouble whenever we go out with ourselves and we don't have backup. I learned this this weekend. I, I was at uh, a campground. I went camping in, um, in, at Canyon Camp by myself. And it was great. I was pretty isolated in my tent. And uh, it was really nice until I woke up and I heard, you know, when um, if you're in a tent and you hear something moving through leaves, it sounds about 10 times as big as it was. So, so I heard something moving outside in the leaves and I thought, okay, you know, it's probably a squirrel or something. And then I heard grunting and, and from multiple snouts, I think. I'm pretty sure there were feral hogs outside my tent and I was alone. I had nobody. Now, luckily they left me alone, but you know, those things can mess you up. And I thought, you know what? I should have a buddy. And, uh, and so if I would just listen to Jesus, I would have been in a lot better shape. Fortunately, I'm good. My tent's good. And uh, they left me alone. But there were uh, two hours after I heard that, I did not go back to sleep. So anyway, if I was traveling with a buddy, I would have uh, at least had some company in my, in my terror. But, uh, but this is what Jesus did. This is, what, uh, this is probably not what Jesus meant whenever he sent them out in twos. But anyway, he, Jesus called out the 12 and began to send them two by two and gave them power and authority. He gave them authority over the clean spirits. He, didn't, he doesn't intend us to do this on our own because what he sends us out to do, what it, what it means to follow him is that we find ourselves face to face with the needs of the world and the evils of, of the world. And if we're going to actually stand up and face those things, we need someone by our side. We need others who are going out with us. We need a buddy. And, uh, and whenever we face those things, it's pretty daunting. You know, anyone up here feel up to solving world hunger today? Pretty big job. And yet, God doesn't ask us to go fix things. And uh, Dr. Elaine Heath has a great way of putting this, what, what it actually means to follow Jesus. We show up, we pay attention to what's going on in the world around us, inside of ourselves, we cooperate with God, and release the outcome. It's not our job to solve world hunger. It is to feed hungry people. And so that's what we do. We do what God asks us to, we cooperate with God, and then we release the results to God, because those aren't ours to control anyway. And so we trust God with it. Then in week three, last week, what we saw was that Jesus teaches that any who want to follow, them, follow him must deny themselves. He says, any who want to follow me must take up their cross and follow me. They must deny themselves. And, uh, and that goes counter to what most of us are seeking most of the time. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for people who want to serve me. How can I get stuff that's beneficial to me? Not how can I deny myself? That's not a whole lot of fun. But what Jesus said is that his followers serve others instead of expecting others to serve them. If we're going to follow Jesus, what it means is that we're, our fundamental orientation is one of service to others and not seeking our own good, but seeking the good of others. And so the, the question that Pastor Mark asked us last week that uh, we could sit with for a while is, what in you needs to die in order to serve others in joyful obedience? And so I hope that's something, if you were here last week, that, that you thought about, and uh, if not, that uh, you'll take that with you as well. And so that's where we've been, and really what Jesus is talking about is, is what it means to live with him in the new kingdom that he's created. The first thing uh, that we hear from Jesus in the gospel of Mark is, is that the kingdom of God has come near. And, and so he's showing us throughout the gospel what it means to live in that kingdom even now, because we don't have to wait. He's, he's inviting us to live with him in this new reality even today. And as we read the gospel, the entire gospel, so we're coming today into chapter 11 out of 16, so we're getting into the the latter parts of the gospel, and his entire gospel has been building toward Jesus' arrival 
in Jerusalem. And three times in the last few chapters, we've heard Jesus tell his disciples that he is going to suffer, that he's going to be crucified, and that he'll be killed, and that he'll rise again, and that that would happen in Jerusalem. So we're pushing toward this climactic moment whenever Jesus will be, will suffer and die in Jerusalem. But his, so his arrival there is significant. It's not just a, a random stop on a road trip. This is where he's headed and where everything is building toward. And as Jesus approached the city, he was greeted as a king. And uh, you know the story we celebrated every year on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, um, but this is what happened. Um, Then the disciples brought a colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, and say it with me, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna, in the highest heaven. And so when Jesus shows up, it's not just this, you know, uh, another traveling rabbi who's arriving in Jerusalem. It is the one that people have been waiting for, that they've been waiting for to to cast out the Romans, to set the people free and reestablish the kingdom that was established by Saul and then David and Solomon to to bring back, in some ways, to bring back the glory days and to usher into a a new kingdom. And um, whenever we read about this, Mark isn't just telling us so we'll know, like, historically, okay, okay, seven days before Jesus w- died and rose again, seven days before he rose again, this is how, what happened. He's not just telling us to share history, just so you know the details. Here are just a few things I want you to know. He's prompting us to make a decision ourselves, to decide whether Jesus is our king. Whenever we read this story, it's not, we're not just, you know, reading it so that we can be like, oh, okay, that's what people did. They waved some palm branches, and that's nice. Maybe I'll wave a palm branch, you know, once a year or so, and uh, that'll be cool. He's saying, this is how people responded to Jesus whenever he showed up. How will you respond? That's the question that he's asking us. In every part of your life, how will you respond? Is Jesus your king, or is he just some entertainment for a few hours a week? It's a, and, uh, I mean, Mark asks us some pointed questions. And so uh, those are the things that, that we're encountered with. Because what he does is he challenges us to encounter Jesus and then to enter into the new reality that he creates. Not just to, to read some stories and to say, that's nice. Yeah, I guess this guy's pretty cool. But to actually encounter him face-to-face to experience him and then to be changed because of it. To actually experience this person and, and to realize, yeah, I think things are different now because of who this person is because I've encountered him and I know what he's like. To experience that. And so that's, that's what we're faced with whenever we read these stories, is to actually encounter Jesus and, and to ask, what does this mean for me? How can I live into the new reality that he's creating based on what I'm reading here? And so, so that's what we're looking at as we go through these stories. And so the next thing that Jesus does after he, he comes in, he's greeted as a king. People are waving palm branches and, and laying their cloaks on the ground uh, so that he doesn't have to walk on the bare ground or his, so his colt doesn't have to. And, and then after he enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. And Mark tells us this interesting, this interesting tidbit. He goes and he looks around. And you're like, and what? And that's it. And nothing. <laughs> Like he goes and he looks around. This is, this is how he puts it. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And it's kind of like, why, why do we need to know that Jesus looked around? Like presumably as he was walking through Jerusalem, I imagine his eyes were not closed, right? I mean, he probably took in a lot of stuff. He saw people who were in uh, market stalls and, and all kinds of things, maybe some people who were begging. So, so why does he tell us this? And, and this is something that, 
anytime we're reading the Bible, like the, the little details are there for a reason. And particularly in Mark, like Mark is all about action and he's trying to move us to the next thing. He uses the word immediately more than any other gospel. He's like, and then immediately Jesus did this and then immediately did this. Like he's not telling you how the roses smelled. Like you can figure, you can guess if you smelled a rose. He, so if he tells you something, it's for a reason. So Jesus went and looked around. He was taking in what was going on in the temple. He, he was appraising it and paying attention. And, and so keep that in mind as we're going forward. Um, so they go back to Bethany. Um, it's late and they go to bed. And then the next day, Jesus has this strange encounter with a fig tree. And um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And so this is how Mark tells it. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, right? I mean, have you ever tried to harvest something out of season? Doesn't work very well, right? I mean, things fruit when they fruit, and uh, if you go at a different time, you're out of luck. And uh, what Jesus said to the tree was, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, that's kind of weird. Like, so Jesus is hungry. We might even say hangry. Probably, that's not the Greek word, but... uh, but he has this encounter, and then he says this, this to the tree, may no one ever, and that seems like an extreme response, right? I mean, whenever I get a cereal box out, and uh, I, there's nothing there, I usually don't, you know, may no one eat of you again. I, I, I guess cereal boxes aren't really renewable, so anyway, that's, that would be an accurate statement. But, but this, is, this is, you know, kind of a strange story. And uh, one of the things that, that we can do is, is we can pay attention to stories like these, and, and then we look at what's around it. Sometimes what's around it will help us to interpret those things. And, and often, uh, you see this in Mark, often seemingly unrelated stories are right next to each other, and those are actually there to help us interpret the other one. So Mark kind of threads narratives together, and uh, if we just, it, it seems disjointed if you don't uh, recognize that, but whenever you pay attention, you kind of think, what's the through line? Like, what connects these? And then that can help us. And, and so this is, what, this is what comes next. So Jesus has this encounter with a fig tree that was, uh, that was not bearing figs because it was not fig season. And he's not super happy about it and says, may you never, he, he essentially curses the tree, may you never bear fruit again. Okay, with me so far? If this seems random, then you're reading it right. Okay, so this, this is what happened next. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." So is Jesus happy about what's going on in the temple? He, he's clearly not. I mean, anytime you're turning over tables, that is generally an indication of dissatisfaction, right? I mean, make a note for Thanksgiving. If that happens, somebody's not happy or somebody's clumsy. I mean, but either way. And so he goes in, he doesn't, he doesn't like what's going on. This passage is difficult to interpret because there... 
we sometimes wonder, like, why are there money changers and why are people selling things? That would be weird if we had that going on in the gathering space out here. That wasn't actually weird in the, in the temple in the first century. Um, the, the people of Israel, they were an occupied territory. The Romans occupied them, and so the currency that people used in daily life was Roman currency. But, but that had graven images. It had emperors who were worshipped as gods on the coins. And so they wouldn't use that in the temple. That, you know, whenever they're making offerings, that would be profane. That would be using... Um, using an, an idol, essentially, offering an idol. And so they, would act, they needed money changers who would exchange it to a particular currency, the temple shekel, and, and they would change it for the money that was particular to their people that did not have foreign gods on it. And, and so this was actually something that they needed. And then if, if you needed to be able to make an offering, you also needed to be able to, to buy the things to make an offering, you know, if you weren't a farmer and didn't have that available. And so it was difficult to interpret because the things, that, the, the particular things that we read about are supposed to be going on, and it's it's not exactly clear why Jesus is, is upset with them other than they're doing that in a way that is not honoring to God. And so there is a way that you can exchange money that is helpful to people. There's also a way that you can do it, um, it that is not helpful and that's actually taking advantage to people. And if you've ever gone to a foreign country and you've done the currency exchange at the airport, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, those rates are not the best exchange rates that you can get. And so it may have been that something like that was going on. It may have been that people that were selling the animals were doing so at an, ex- at an exorbitant rate. It may have just been that the things that, that were happening there aside from that were not honoring to God because he talks about... About, uh, he says basically, he's quoting from the prophets, you have made it a den of robbers. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that, that robbery is happening there. I don't know how far to take this metaphor that he's using because robbers don't rob in their den. You know, it's the safe place that they come after they've robbed. So it may have been that the people taking refuge there were actually ta- taking advantage of people in their daily lives, you know. And so they live in ways that weren't honoring to God and, and that were harmful to their neighbors. And then coming and showing up at, at uh, you know, basically our equivalent of showing up at church to show everyone how righteous you are, you've maybe experienced that before, right? And, and so in any case, what, what basically what we can see is that Jesus is saying that, that the things that are going on here are not honoring to God. It, it's not clear exactly why, but, but we can tell that clearly he's displeased and doesn't feel that God is being honored in the temple. And so whenever we put that next to what just came before that, remember, uh, what did Jesus curse? a fig tree. Okay, so we're holding these together. We're seeing that fruit is not being born. And so the metaphor kind of by putting these things next to each other is that the temple is not bearing fruit um, for, for God in the way that it's supposed to. Um, that, that, that the Messiah has come, it's his season is here, but the temple is not in its season as far as producing the kind of fruit that Jesus is, um, is, is inviting people to by living in the kingdom. So you with me kind of? You see why this is confusing? Okay, all right, don't worry. It'll get, it'll get more confusing and then less <laughs> if it's going well. Okay, so, so actually one of the ways that you can read this if you're reading it in, concept, in, in uh, context is that the fig tree can be read as a prophecy of the temple's destruction. Because what happened next, they went back after Jesus had, had, um, had basically shut down the temple for a little while. They went back to Bethany, and then the next morning they were coming back into Jerusalem. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree. And it had withered. It had withered away to its roots. 
And so in some ways, that, what that looks like, when you put, the, put uh, A, B, A, you have that kind of pattern going on, is what that looks like is you have the fig tree that's not bearing fruit, then you have the temple that's not bearing fruit, and then you have a withered fig tree. And so that reads as, as a prophecy of its destruction. And uh, this is also the time that we think Mark was writing. And, and it's hard for us to, to imagine uh, what that would have been like, but the destruction of the temple, it seemed like an apocalyptic event, and in some ways it was, for Jews, including those who follow Jesus. And, and one of the things that's hard about these passages is remembering that, all, that there weren't Christians and Jews. There were just Jews who followed Jesus and, and Jews who did not follow Jesus at this point. Everyone was Jewish that we're reading about in the Gospels, except for a few kind of random people. And so as we're interpreting this, it's not like Jesus and his group of proto-Christians were going in. It was people who were all Jewish and who worshiped in the temple. That was their home. That was where um, they, how they honored God, where they believed that God's presence resided in a special way. And so whenever that was destroyed, that, that was a really difficult thing for them to wrap their minds around. Like if, if the temple's destroyed, where's God's presence on earth? How do we offer sacrifices? How do we continue to practice our faith? Our home has been destroyed. And, uh, and actually, and really, until there were no non-Jewish Christians until Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. I mean, so that's, that's like years after Jesus' resurrection. It was a long time when basically Christianity was a sect of Judaism. I mean, a denomination, that's not quite right, but it's almost something like that. And so this was really an, an insider thing that was going on. And, and I think this is helpful. This helped me a lot. Um, Amy Jill Levine talks about this. She says, it's sometimes said that Judaism is the mother religion and Christianity is the daughter, but church and synagogue are better seen as siblings fighting over its parents' legacy. Do you, do you follow that? And, and so sometimes we'll look at, basically we'll see Judaism today as kind of essentially the same faith as, as Jesus' faith. What she's saying is that there's temple Judaism, the Judaism as it was practiced during Jesus' day, and this, this event of the destruction of the temple was, was so significant that it actually spawned two different religions, one that acknowledges Jesus as Messiah and, and one that continues the faith um, essentially as rabbinic Judaism today. And, and so you can almost look at that um, whenever we send our, our students to the temple, uh, to Temple B'nai Israel, what we're seeing is not necessarily a faith that Jesus practiced, but, but another faith that sprung up after that in response to um, the destruction of the temple. And, and so all of this is going on, and whenever we read about things like, you know, Jesus prophesying the destruction of the temple, and there's a way of reading the things that, that we just read and saying, well, the people of that day, and, and the way that Christians a lot of times will spin it, the Jews of that day work on my grip. But the people of that day were not being faithful, and so God punished them and destroyed their temple. And we're the heirs now. Now we're God's favored people. And, um, and that is a little bit worrisome to me, because I don't know about you, but I've read church history, and we get it wrong a lot, like a lot. And it's kind of like, God... Why aren't you flattening more churches whenever you see what, you know, if this is, and so we get to some of these passages and, and we think through the implications of them and, and they're really tough because we think about these are the people that God made a covenant with. And if God's done with them, you know, destruction of the temple and all of that, like, is God's covenant with us like equally revocable? And so there are these difficult passages that we come to. There are these difficult implications whenever we think about it. And when we read the Bible, sometimes we come to passages that are troubling and, uh, and we had, Pastor Robert and I were talking about kind of how this series laid out and who got which weeks. And whenever we looked at the week that I got this week, he said, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
And, and I thought, as I was thinking about this, you know, we're talking about a beginner's guide to the Bible, and, and this is not exactly beginner's level stuff, right? But I thought it was important because one of the things that all of us need to know as beginners is sometimes we're going to come up against passages, if we're trying to be faithful, that we don't know what to do with that are really hard to interpret. And sometimes it's just, we have no idea what they mean. Like, okay, Jesus, you just cursed a fig tree. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Am I supposed to curse fig trees? The answer is no, I, don't, I think. But, but, but it's difficult. And, uh, and one of the things that was really helpful for me in reading uh, Dr. Levine's work, she, she's a fantastic scholar. She's one of my professors at Vanderbilt. But one of the things she said, when I don't like a text, I wrestle with it. And some of you, if you grew up in Sunday school, you hear her say that, and you're like, you can not like a text in the Bible. Like, that is, you're like, I didn't think that was an option. Like, don't you get thrown out of Sunday school if you say you don't like something? But I think what, what I see in that, it's helpful to me to say, you know, there are things that I read that are troubling. And, and I can be honest about that. And, and what that actually makes it possible for, if I come across things are, that are troubling and I have to pretend like I, lock, I like it, what I'm going to do is like, I'll read it once and say, oh yeah, that's great. And then I'm going to pretend like I never read that right? I mean, it's almost like, have any of you seen Thomas Jefferson's Bible? He basically came up with a, a, a copy of the New Testament where he, he wanted to get rid of all the supernatural stuff. And so, I mean, literally, he cut it out. He had a knife and cut it out and then pasted it together. And, and that's what we end up doing if we have to say, like, you know, there's stuff that I don't like. And what Dr. Levine is saying, yes, you'll come across things that are hard, that you might even wish they weren't there. You know, like last week, we were talking about deny yourself. And uh, if you like that, then you either did not understand it or you were lying, right? <laughs> I mean, none of us like to deny ourselves. There's hard stuff in the Bible. But what she says is not that we just write it off and pretend like we didn't read it. We wrestle with it. We wrestle with it. We try and say, okay, this is hard. This is confusing. How is God speaking to me through this? How, how can I hear that? And, and one of the things that's really interesting about this, so afterward, the disciples see this and Jesus, they ask Jesus about it. And he doesn't say, well, all those people down there are bad, so I'm going to destroy the temple. And uh, then they'll know that they were really bad. What he actually talks about, he talks about the power of prayer. And then he concludes by commanding them to forgive. He, he talks about prayer and says, when you pray, make sure that you're forgiving. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And it's almost like this reminder, while, while you're, if you're tempted to look at the people who are getting it wrong, remember that you have committed sins as well. You need forgiveness just as much as they do. And so sometimes that's helpful. Like, okay, this is confusing. I think that's a condemnation of those people. But Jesus is like turning the mirror immediately on me and reminding me that I need forgiveness too. And, and, and so we come into this. It's a lot really going to pile a little bit more on to make it a, a lot or more. Um, but as we continue wrestling with these difficult scriptures, if, if you keep reading into, um, into chapter 12, you, you read another one that's really tough. And Jesus tells a, a parable of, of a landowner who um, buys an orchard and, um, and then he leaves and he hires tenants basically to work the land for him. And so these tenants are working the land and then the time comes for, for harvest. And so he sends one of his slaves to come and pick up his share of the harvest. And instead of giving it to them, they, they kill the slave and they keep it for themselves. And so he sends another one hoping for a different result and he doesn't get a different result. They kill that one as well and it happens again. And, and finally, this is what happens. The, the landowner still had a, a, one other, a beloved son. Is that phrase familiar? If you've heard the series, you remember that whenever Jesus was baptized. This is my son, the beloved. Finally, he sent 
he sent him to them, the landowner did, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And again, this is a pretty not super uplifting passage, right? I mean, you read this passage and you're like, okay, I mean, what this, the, the interpretation most commonly is that basically God sent the prophets to tell people to change their ways. They killed the prophets and then he sent his own son and they killed him too. And so what is God going to do? Uh, well, I mean, if we're saying it's, it's exactly an allegory, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And uh, again, this is one of those things that's like, okay, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? Because this one's not great. And one of the things that we just have to acknowledge, if we know our history, is that throughout history, Christians have used passages like this to justify the persecution and even killing of Jews. That history is really bad. I mean, we've done all kinds of awful things. The, some, some of the things that the Nazis were saying, they were actually drawing on Christian writers because of the things that they've said. Well, I mean, if we, and you can imagine if we're drawing on parables like this and applying it in that way, then the things that we say can have really awful, awful consequences. And here's the thing that we have to keep in mind. We're responsible for ensuring that the way that we read the Bible doesn't lead to persecution, because that's happened way too much throughout history. Whenever people were trying to justify slavery, what did they use? The Bible. Whenever people were trying to justify segregation, what did they use? The Bible. Whenever they were taking land from Jews, they would use the Bible as justification. And, and so th- that's not an option to us. And we have to pay, be really careful that the way that we read it doesn't cause us to oppress people. And one of the things that that we're seeing around the world is that there's a rise in anti-Semitism. The way that people are talking about other people is leading to violence. We're also seeing a rise in Islamophobia. And so what we have to remember, and uh, there's way too much to talk about the current situation in, uh, in Israel and Gaza, but what's really clear is that we have to talk about Israelis in a way that doesn't allow people to use our language to justify killing them. We have to talk about Palestinians in ways that doesn't allow people to use our language to justify killing them. We have to remember that God cares about every single Israeli life. God cares about every Palestinian life, every single Christian life, Jewish life, Muslim life, no faith, every single one. And that's absolutely crucial. And the way that we read the Bible affects the way that people behave. And if not that, then at least it'll give people fuel who are looking for reasons to do bad things to other people. And so we need to be really clear. And one of the things that I think can help us, I know it's like, okay, we're kind of behind the eight ball here. This is a tough passage. People have used it to do lots of stuff. Pretty heavy stuff, huh? So one of the things that we can do is we can pause and we can ask ourselves, we can ask, where do I see myself in the story? Because in these last couple of stories, it's been easy, if, if you've been reading it like I do, to put myself like behind Jesus with the disciples and like, okay, we're watching those people who are getting it wrong. And it might actually be helpful for us to put ourselves in the place of the people who are getting it wrong. Because I don't know about you, but I sometimes get it wrong. And if I tell you I sometimes get it wrong, I, I might be a little bit misleading because I get it wrong a fair, a quite a bit. <laughs> I don't know about you, but one of the things we have to remember, Jesus' teaching, it doesn't just address first century Jews. It addresses everyone who hears it. 
And so whenever we hear those things addressed to other people, whenever we hear those things addressed to the people in the temple in first century, you know, sometime in the 20s or around 30 AD, it's not just for them, it's for us too. And so we read the story of the fig tree, we read the story of the wicked tenants, and instead of just saying, yeah, those people were really bad and then God punished them, we have to ask ourselves, how have I failed to bear fruit in Jesus' parents, in Jesus' presence? How have I been like the fig tree and whenever he's here and gives me opportunities to serve others, I I choose to serve myself instead? And then when have I ignored what God asks? When have I said, okay, God, yes, thank you for asking me to love my enemies. I'm I'm going to pray for them and and stop there, right? And and just ignore, you know, maybe we've not taken it as extreme as the tenants, but certainly we've not done the things that God has asked us to. The thing about the scripture is it holds us holds up a mirror to us and makes us look at the things that we'd really rather not look at. And, and whenever we're tempted to look at others and the ways that they get it wrong because of what the Bible says, then that's a clue to look at ourselves instead, to look at how might God be speaking to me through this and not to them. And one of the things that's really helpful is that, you know, there are some passages like those two, like the fig tree, like the um, cleansing of the temple, the parable of the wicked tenants that are pretty unclear, and uh, the things that are clear are kind of troubling. But while some of those are unclear, Jesus is really clear that what matters most is love. He's super clear about what matters most. And so despite saying all the things that he, he's said, he, he doesn't just like write off the temple and the people in it. He goes into it and he teaches. And this is what he said. One of the scribes came near and heard some people disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Say this with me, there is no other commandment greater than these. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that I don't understand, and I've spent a lot of time studying it. I've had some of the best teachers in the world, like Dr. Levine, and there's still a lot that I don't get. Do you know what is super clear to me? That God is all about love. That God so loved the world that he sent his son, and that's what he asked me to do as well. And so I don't know what, uh, you know, I don't know how to interpret every passage in the Bible. I don't know how to interpret every passage in Mark. There's some stuff that makes me scratch my head, and I'm just like, Jesus, I don't know. You've got to help me here. But what I always know is that what Jesus asked me to do is to love, to love God and to love neighbors. And, and that's exactly what he did. What Jesus does whenever he asks the scribe this, the scribe responds and says, you know, whenever he, t- he answers the scribe's question and tells him, yeah, these, these two commandments are what's most important. But he's not like, but you haven't been faithful and the temple's going to be destroyed and, and you're out. No, what Jesus says to him that he'd answered wisely, he said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He loved him, and that's what he asked us to do as well. The clear message throughout the Bible is that the love of God changes everything and invites us to change as well because we've encountered Jesus. This is how Archbishop Rowan William puts it. He says, The God who's going to change everything, change forever the conditions in which human beings live, is a God who is beyond power as we would like to understand it. A God who does not coerce belief or clinch arguments, but who repeatedly demands relation and trust, who invites us, says, Trust me, follow me, have a relationship with me. 
and take the same love that I've offered to you and spread it throughout. I heard a story this weekend. Someone was uh, just sharing part of their story, and it was uh, a gathering of, of church people in the United Methodist Church around Oklahoma. And uh, this woman um, was telling her story. She'd grown up as an atheist in uh, Illinois, and then um, she had moved to Oklahoma as a teenager. And uh, she was kind of like apprehensive about that. She's like, "Are people going to start like knocking on my door and asking me if I know Jesus?" And they did, and uh, <laughs> and it was awkward. But eventually she kind of got to a place where she was trying to, you know, to find friends in a new place. And uh, so she's like, well, you know, there are churches everywhere, and uh, maybe I'll just try it. And she went to one, and no one talked to her. And, and she went to another, and it uh, just, you know, just was not right, and, and it didn't work out. And uh, went to another, and that one, you know, it didn't, nothing really happened there either. And so she was like, okay, maybe, maybe not, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I can't find community there. And uh, she's working at Little Caesars. And uh, so she was at work one day and uh, this father and son came in and they kind of were talking to her as uh, they, I was going to say as they were waiting, but they probably weren't waiting because it's hot and ready, you know, anyway. (laughs) But uh, maybe that was pretty hot and ready. But, but they were having a conversation. They said, well, you know, do you have a, a church that you attend? And she said, no, yeah, I don't. They said, well, we're having a Christmas party at our church. You know, we'd love for you to attend if you'd like to. And so she said, oh, okay, thanks for inviting me. And, and they left. And she's like, well, okay, probably won't go to that. And then they came back. And they brought uh, an invitation to it. And she said, they cared so much about whether I came. They went out of their way to make sure they knew, that I knew that they wanted me to be there. She didn't go, but, but eventually she called the church and set up a meeting with the youth director and uh, started attending, and, uh, and eventually it became a home. Today she's working with college students doing amazing ministry, but it's because someone cared enough to actually go out of their way to encounter her, because they had encountered Jesus, they had experienced his love, and they wanted someone else to encounter that. And I just wonder, as you go to Little Caesars, I mean, assuming that you're living in 2019 still and pick up your own food. I mean, that's kind of passe. <laughs> but I wonder, whenever you're going about your week, whenever you just have those chance encounters, do people encounter you in a way that enables them to experience Jesus? Do you have the kind of presence that whenever people experience that, whenever they encounter you, that they might know that they are loved? And so that's what I want to challenge you to do this week, to live your life in a way that if someone runs into you, that they might have an encounter with Jesus, that you do something as simple as inviting them to something, as simple as showing them that you care if they show up, that you actually notice them and care about their presence. Let them experience the love of Jesus through you. And then as we continue going through the Gospel of Mark, I want to invite you just to actually practice. You probably do this anyway, but be aware of it. As you're reading the Bible, ask yourself, where am I placing, where do I see myself in this story? If you really want to go deep, you can look at Ignatian Bible reading. He's got this whole thing about, you know, how to actually place yourself in this story. Um, I know Ignatius is uh, easy to spell on the fly, but anyway, but, but actually place yourself in the story because whenever we do that, we can actually encounter Jesus in a new way and allow him to speak to us in ways that can change everything because that's what he does for us. He comes in, and we encounter this person of amazing power that a lot of times we don't get, and that's good, because if you can understand everything that he did, then, then he's not maybe worth understanding. He's so far beyond us, and you know what's really clear about him is that his love is what it's all about, love God and love neighbors, and that's what he invites us to as well. Let's be that for the world. Will you pray with me? 
God, we're so grateful for your son. We're grateful that he came. And uh, if we're honest, sometimes he confuses us. Sometimes he's hard to understand. Sometimes he says things that we don't like. And yet the things that he says are the things that we need. And what we see in his life at every moment is a life defined by love. So God, define our lives by your love and help us to live in a way that shares your love with others. We thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice, and we thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.